please turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And before we look at a particular verse, I want to tell a, a story. It's a story of, it's a brief story of a middle-aged man, not me, just so you know, not even pretending, it's not me. But a fella, you know, say in his early 40s or so, if you're in your early 40s and you heard that's middle age and you're disappointed, multiply it times two and you'll realize it's a, say middle aged. And he used to take regular walks, part of how he stayed healthy, a walk in a park. And in that park, there was a portion of the park that was completely bounded around a long ways by a wall. And due to circumstances of decay and change, uh, any entry through the wall had been obscured by dirt and rocks. And really, the only way you were going to get into the other part of the park was to climb over the wall, which was intimidating, but not necessarily impossible. It looked like it'd be a lot of challenging work, looked like it might be difficult, but was doable, wasn't against the law. And he would walk each week and he'd get to that wall and think, oh, I'd like to see what's on the other side. But it looked a bit rough, not like something he really necessarily wanted to do. He was really torn, but his curiosity would just grow and grow. And finally, after many times, he was standing there looking at the wall and decided. He reached into his pocket and got his car keys and reached into his other pocket and got his wallet with his credit cards and his driver's license and the rest. And after flipping through it all a bit, packaged it all up and tossed it over the wall. Because he knew now, if he could, he would move heaven or earth to get over that wall uh, and get his car keys and get his wallet back. He just had to have the right motivation. He had to see that there was something on the other side worthwhile enough to drive him to do that difficult thing. If you turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And we'll look in verse 21. Jesus Christ tells us something very plain. Matthew chapter 26. Sorry, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21. He tells us very simply, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so that's what he did. He took his treasure. He took what he needed, what was very important to him, and threw it on the other side of the wall. So suddenly it was very important to him to be there. His treasure was there. His heart was there. And so this giant division that had been between him and that other place, he found cause to clamber over and to get there. And so with that in mind, I've asked Mr. Dylan King to do me a favor for this. And if you don't like the sound of this, I I apologize. But I think it's a helpful sound to remind all of us of what's coming ahead. Uh, Mr. King, if you would, please. He told me he would try. He would try. Thank you, Mr. King. Thank you very much. Uh, he said, "He said, you know, it's a it's a little hole. It's really hard to blow." I said, "I know. It's it's the Church of God. We're very forgiving." Uh, and that was really good. It was either Mr. King doing that or me up here with one of those paper towel rolls, you know, trying to trying to imitate it. So thank you very much. Come Monday, Feast of Trumpets, we'll be celebrating the events culminating in the return of Jesus Christ, including that seventh trumpet, when everything changes. Everything changes, changes about the world, changes in your life. We're all on this timeline, if you will, from this moment right now. You can't go back from this moment right now forward. And there's this dividing line between this life and that one. And it's marked by the sound of a trumpet between this one and that one. And part of what's vital for us during this time we have on this side of that trumpet blast is to recognize that that's where our treasure is. That's where our heart is. For all of our hopes and our dreams and our desires, 
they really find their greatest fulfillment on the other side of that trumpet. They're not in this life. And that's what I want to help us do today somehow is to take Jesus Christ's advice. Take Christ's advice to help us understand that our real treasure, all of our hopes and our dreams really are on the other side instead of this side. And so the title of my sermon today is The Other Side. The Other Side. Now, for those of you who are fans of the musical, The Greatest Showman, I'm not going to be singing a song from The Greatest Showman. There's a song from that called The Other Side. And then you would all start clamoring, bring out Rebecca, bring out Rebecca. And that would be the end of end of the sermon. The Other Side. As we do this, we have to somehow find a way to take our hearts, our treasure, and put it on the other side of that trumpet sound. And that's a challenge. You know, one of the articles we published in the Living Church News this time around is the is three letters from the millennium. It's fiction. It's something to help us try to imagine that time. Try to imagine the time on the other side of trumpets, if you will. This feast, they're right now. Well, perhaps not right now. People are probably speaking in services in various places. But in this time... There are ministers all over the world striving to put together messages to help all of us during the feast picture that time. To help us understand that that's the time we should be longing for. Not this time, but that time. And I hope we're praying for those ministers. I can identify with many of them. I'm sure many of them feel as desperate as I do right now. Because you recognize it's God's time during this. And he wants his people to hear something worthwhile. Having our treasure, having our heart on the other side of that wall is part of what has driven the great men of faith and women of faith throughout history. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11. Let's take a look at just two or three in Hebrews chapter 11. We'll read of Abraham and Sarah first, Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 8. We read, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, it might be easy for us to think about doing that when your bank account is sort of in the clouds, so to speak. And you can contact Airbnb and see if there's a place along various routes to see if you can rent someplace. Abraham had a virtual empire. He had people. His, his wealth was in living things all around him, animals and the rest. And it was quite an ambitious venture. But God said, go. Abraham may have said, where? He said, yeah, I'll show you. Just go. And so Abraham did. Verse 9, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He recognized, even if this journey just keeps on going, that's the city I want. It's that city. Nothing compares. It doesn't compare to Ur. It doesn't compare to the sort of lush tent I can put up for myself. That's the city I'm looking for. Sarah as well. Verse 11. By faith, Sarah received also strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. We tend to focus on the fact that Sarah laughed. You tell me if you were Sarah's age and you heard that you were going to have a baby, if you wouldn't potentially snicker just a little bit. If you're a man, I hope you would. That's ridiculous. But in Sarah's case, even at her age, it's like, you've got to be kidding, right? But the Bible, in the end, doesn't focus on that fact. It focuses on her faith, that she had faith that this was possible. Verse 12, therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. What drove that faith? It says here in 13, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them. Don't pass that too quickly. It's hard to embrace more than one person. You ever done a group hug? 
group hug isn't really a hug, right? It's not, you know, it's a huddle. It's a huddle. You know, when you see the men on the football field, I dare you to tell one of those guys, that's a pretty impressive group hug you were doing down there, right? And embrace tends to be one person or, or, or one thing, maybe a couple, but still it's hard to fit in a lot of things. What did they embrace? It says they embrace these promises and confess they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They didn't value what was on this side of that wall of that trumpet in the same way they valued what was on the other side. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, that this isn't it. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. It's that they didn't even think about that. It didn't come across their minds. They weren't traveling and thinking, ah, the leeks in Ur were so good like their descendants eventually would do. Oh, remember when we were in Ur... They had that great circus that would come through Ur every once in a while. I missed that. I loved the elephant guy or, or whatever it was that they enjoyed in that. They were totally focused on the land ahead. Verse 16. But now they desire a better. That is a heavenly country. What's the result? Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Because that was their focus. Because life on the other side of the wall, life on the other side of the trumpet was more important to them. God is busy preparing it for them. Have you ever worked on something for someone else? And then after a certain amount of time, began to suspect they didn't really care about it that much. That you're trying to pour your best into it. Maybe it's carpentry. It's something you're building. It's something you're making. And then you talk to the person you're making it for. And they know you're making it. It's like, well, it sounds, you know, whatever. I'm sure it'll be fine. And you don't really find that they seem excited about it. That they're that interested in it. How hard is it for you to keep putting love into making that product? To really devote yourself to, to doing your best? It says here that God is not ashamed to be called their God and has prepared a city for them because that really is their focus. He knows that's what they wanted and their father is looking forward to provide that for them. They had thrown their wallet and keys on the other side of the wall, if you will. In fact, Jesus Christ is perhaps one of the best examples. Go figure. In Hebrews chapter 12, just a little bit later, we're told in verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, what motivated him? What stirred him? Now, let me actually give you some alternative answers to that first, because sometimes uh, I need to qualify this. Sometimes I can feel this way and I get into this sort of trap. We actually had a, a wonderful teen Bible study just, uh, I guess it was last week. It was, it was recent. We were talking about the gospel and the teens were answering, why do we have to preach the gospel? Why, why must we preach the gospel? Why is it important? And the answers were fantastic. Whoever's rearing teens here, you're doing a wonderful job, except for the Smiths. What's up with that? But no, you're all doing wonderful jobs. And, but we talked about it because it's easy to get into the trap. And it is somewhat of a trap that we're doing it because we're commanded to do it. And absolutely we are commanded to do it. Let me say this, those who lose sight of the fact they are commanded to do the work end up stopping doing the work. But hopefully there's more motivation than that. Hopefully it's because we want to help the world. Hopefully it's because all the wrongs we see paraded in front of us on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, whatever you watch, hopefully we long deep down to be able to change those things and make this a better world and that we're living the kind of life and understand the kind of truths that it almost hurts us that other people don't understand what we know. So that we're driven by more than the fact that we're commanded to do it. God wants us to have more motivation than that, something that's forward-looking. And Jesus Christ, he certainly had a mission to fulfill, right? He certainly had an obligation. There was a plan, and he and his father were working a plan. But he wasn't a robot. He was a human being when he was here on the earth, a human being who happened to be God. 
And so continuing in verse 2, why did he do this? We say again here in verse 2 of Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It wasn't just the mission. It wasn't just the fact that, well, this has to be done. My father and I, we prophesied this in the Old Testament, so I've got to do it. Otherwise, we're liars and we're not liars. We're good gods. He wasn't saying, thinking. He was motivated by what was ahead. And what was ahead for him? If you take the time to think about that, it's a bit of a departure, but I think it's important. It, if you ask me, and I'm the person talking right now, we can ask you later. But if you ask me, it wasn't just his own glorification. Because he says plainly in John chapter 17 uh, that he wanted to be returned. He asked his father to give him the glory that he had with the father before the world was. That's something he had already had. That's something he had already possessed. If that's what really motivated him, what did, why would he have given it up in the first place? What was the joy that was set before him? Personally, I think it was all of you. And hopefully me too. It was us. Because before he gave up that glory to be able to become a human being walking amongst us, to have a cross to endure, to have to face shame and being despised, they didn't have us. They would have continued through eternity without you and without me. And that's not what they wanted. What was the joy? The joy was the family. The joy was what they wanted to build together. And for all of that, for all of us, for all of you, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and now sits down at the right hand of God. He was drawn by a life, by a world that was on the other side of the wall. And he had thrown his wallet and keys over. He was committed. And that's what God is looking for in us. He's looking for us to be committed. I do want to make sure we have a certain perspective. If you'll turn to Colossians chapter 3, let's discuss it because it's easy to misunderstand this. And when I say it's easy to misunderstand, I mean it's easy for me to misunderstand. If it's not easy for you to misunderstand because you don't misunderstand, good for you. Congratulations. You may not listen for the next 60 seconds perhaps. But it is easy for me to misunderstand. I'm going to read through this real quickly first and then comment a bit afterwards. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Paul says here, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's a great summary of what's going on and what we should be seeking to do. Now, here's the perspective I want to make sure that I I communicate. What I'm saying, at least trying to say in the sermon, and what... I believe God is saying in scripture is not that we should disparage somehow the life we're living now or the goals and hopes and dreams that we have in this life. I mention that because sometimes, let me just again speak of myself, sometimes I know I can communicate things like this in such a way that that we can paint a picture of having these sort of aspirations, these sort of kingdom level aspirations, these sort of next life sort of aspirations, these sort of next world goals and accidentally paint a picture of life as if what's available to us now is not to be enjoyed or the things in this life, the earthly things are somehow to all be completely disparaged as if you should go be a monk in a monastery somewhere to do nothing but meditate on spiritual things, wear cool robes and copy books all day long forever and ever. Now that I say that that's all we're missing in editorial is cool robes. If we just had cool robes, we'd have, we'd have the whole thing. 
sometimes that can come across and, and we don't mean it that way. None of us mean it that way, but we can't accidentally paint a picture like that. Uh, if you're not familiar with Oliver Wendell Holmes, senior and junior, they were both fascinating, fascinating men. And Oliver Wendell Holmes, senior, uh, was a poet among other things. And one of the things he's famous for having said is that some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And there's a truth to that, though really, if, if we understood things rightly, it's not true. If you're properly heavenly minded, then you're of remarkable earthly good. But there is a sort of heavenly minded, if you will, that Mr. Holmes here is talking about, that that is true. You can be so focused on what seems to be a spiritual approach to life. That in the end, you're just no earthly good. You're not really accomplishing truly something worthwhile or even living life in this life the way that God would actually intend you to. Jesus Christ told us that he came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. In the end, it's not about taking away things that are good and replacing them with better things. A life well lived in this life helps to point us to the better life that God holds out for us. God has designed so many good things in this life that should help point us to a better one. Sometimes we can accidentally, not on purpose, strive to somehow be more righteous than God. The Pharisees did that. The Pharisees built a system of religiosity ended up tying burdens on the people that God never intended to be tied. They weren't truly a part of his law. He didn't spell them out in the Old or New Testaments. The Pharisees just thought they knew maybe a little bit better than God and began adding more and more details and piling more and more things. And we have to be careful about that in our lives because sometimes we think we're living a more spiritual life when maybe we're not. Maybe we're somehow making our life unnecessarily harder. Uh, let me just pick two examples to help set this perspective before we move on. Let me talk about dating and marriage very briefly. God designed us as physico-chemical beings. We have chemicals in our body. And if we don't think we're physical-chemical beings, if we think that our mind is nothing but a purely... Uh, was a purely intangible thing because we teach in the church of God that the human mind is a combination of spirit and brain. That the human spirit that God gives plus the human brain that God designed combine produce the human mind. Uh, there's an article in the Tomorrow's World magazine about that called The Mystery of the Mind. I believe I should be, I, I wrote it. I thought I'd remember the title. I can't remember, but we've long taught that from Mr. Armstrong's days. Well, when a guy gets drunk, and just tosses back way too many beers, he's affected, right? And none of us say, oh, that's all right. It doesn't make a difference. It's just his body. It's just his body that's drunk. No, he himself is drunk. We're physical, chemical beings. We can give you in the dentist's office some gases or, or, or liquids, and suddenly you're unconscious. You know, there is a, God created us as physical, chemical, physico chemicals, how Mr. Armstrong, the word... I tried to look for it other places. I didn't know if he coined it or not. We're physical chemical beings. And so consequently, when it comes to man and woman, chemicals attract, right? Uh, young men see attractive girls and they ask them out on dates and they're motivated to want to get married. In and of itself, that's not a bad thing. The Bible says that the way of a man with a maiden is something wonderful, and so we don't mean to disparage that. There's nothing wrong with, uh, hopefully, you know, you're, you're dating other girls. If you're a guy, you're asking girls out. And if you happen to think, well, wow, she's really pretty. You don't have to think, wait, if I just committed the unpardonable sin, what should I do? You know, I just thought a girl was pretty. No, that's, girls are pretty, right? There's a difference between boys and girls and viva la difference, right? That's not a bad thing. God created that. You can pretty much assume when God made Eve and introduced her to Adam, he didn't say, eh, yeah, all right, right? I Actually, there's a terrible mistranslation of the Bible. It's a paraphrase. I wish I could think of the title of it, but it's awful. I know what it's called. I do remember. It's called the word on the street. Get it? The word 
It lets you know what to expect from this particular uh, paraphrase of the Bible. And in that paraphrase, it says in Genesis that when God brought Eve to Adam, it says Adam says, whoa, now we're talking. And if you don't think of Keanu Reeves' voice when you say that, you're, you're making a mistake. That is a terrible translation of the Bible. If you're using that for Bible study, please set fire to it in a safe place and, and be rid of it. That said... I do think that Adam, he said, oh, hey, this is, this is flesh of my flesh. This is, hey, now we're talking, really. I do think he was pleased, right? But that said, when you do set your affections on the other side of the wall, when you've truly thrown your wallet and your keys to that side, it doesn't change that fact, but it changes how you apply it. It changes how you deal with that. You know, you might think the, the girl you currently found, fellas, is, is, is the most beautiful girl ever. And a lot of guys think that until another beautiful girl comes along, right? So maybe you found several beautiful girls. Well, how are you evaluating them? I did uh, uh, know a fellow once that just had a list of what he was looking for in a wife. And all of them were physical attributes. Not a one. I didn't even see, does she speak my language on there? Which isn't necessary, right? You can learn different languages. I, you know, I understand that. But if you're thinking of your life on the other side of the wall, if that's where your hopes and dreams are centered, then it doesn't take away the other things, but it does add to that. Now suddenly you're thinking, is this someone that I want to be tethered to in this life? Because we'll be climbing this wall together. Because I'm getting over that wall. That's the life that's waiting for me. That's my eternity. Is this someone I want to be, I can't remember what it's called, belay, right? When you have someone else working on your rope and helping you up something. Is this the one I want for that purpose? Because that's a part of that. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says that husband and wife are heirs together of the grace of life. If we've truly committed to life on the other side of the wall, we're evaluating our options Understanding that journey will never deviate. And I want a partner next to me that's just as committed to that as I am. Then when you say, hey, by the way, have you tossed your wallet and keys over the wall too? I sure have. All right. That was my terrible lady's voice. I apologize if that was bad. And ladies, I don't want to scare you if uh, any guy asks you out on a date and you're at Starbucks and he says, by the way, have you tossed your wallet and keys over the wall? It's a terrible line, guys. Don't use that. Heirs together the grace of life. Once you've made that commitment, once life on the other side of that shofar blast matters more to you than this life, it doesn't necessarily take away the good things of this life, but it adds to them. It develops them. It gives them a perspective and a value. Let's pick something a little more mundane, perhaps. Uh, just your job. Maybe i make up a job. Mark, Mr. Sandor, Mr. Sandor and Mrs. Sandor, I think both, used to be waiters at Outback Steakhouse. I wish I knew them then because a discount to Outback Steakhouse would be fantastic. So there were waiters there. Well, does that impact how you are as a waiter? If your life is on the other side of that wall, if you're focused, yes, it does. It impacts what you do when the customers at that table have treated you poorly. When you brought them exactly what they ordered and you know for a fact it's what they ordered. And they said, I didn't order this. So... Yes, ma'am, you know, whatever it is, and you serve them, you have a different approach than you do. When you're working with your boss, when you're serving your boss, and you read in the Bible, it talks about serving your masters as if you are serving Jesus Christ. And you're looking at this guy whose relationship maybe to the health code is a little questionable at times, right? And you're wondering if you're going to get that bonus you, he said you were going to get. And maybe you are shopping around for another job, but he is right now still your boss. Knowing that your life is tied up on the other side of that wall can help give us the strength to do the things we should in those times. Coming back to Colossians chapter 3. And we'll just uh, jump to verse 2. It says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Now understand, it doesn't necessarily mean these ethereal thoughts where you're constantly imagining what it's going to be like in a city of gold or those sorts of things. But just like Paul says elsewhere in Philippians, focusing on those things that are good, that are noble, 
things that are uplifting and edifying. Those are the things that are above because that exemplifies the character of the one who reigns above over all things. Setting your mind on those things. It doesn't take away some of our motivations in this world, but it does color them. It does change them. It does transform them. It says in verse 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does it mean to say that you died? Well, it's like throwing that wallet and keys to the other side of the wall. The attachments that tied you in any kind of permanent way to this world are severed. Suddenly there's another world you long for. You went into the waters of baptism and what came out in a very real way was a new creation. Admittedly, it takes time for that new creation to develop. God calls the things that are not yet as though they are. And he pronounces the death of the old man when you were baptized. But it takes us the rest of our life to live out the consequences of that death sentence. As the old man dies in us day by day and the new man is regenerated. So he says you died. You don't care about the old things if they were sin. But if they weren't sin... You can still care about them, but you care about them in a different way. They mean something different to you than they did before. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, I could take a lot of things from you. Well, I probably couldn't. A lot of you are bigger than I am. But let's say I could. Let's say I took a lot of things with you and you'd care about different things more than others. If I took your wallet, that would be really important. If I took your left shoestring. Eh, you wouldn't care so much. There's a scale, right? Well, the fact is your life isn't even yours anymore. Where is it? Where is your life? Where is my life? It's with Jesus Christ, with God. And if I, I've had to wait for things from Amazon and I have gotten frustrated, right? It's like, oh, they said it'd be here tomorrow and now it's going to be two days. What's going on? This is a travesty. I need that doohickey. I paid $5 for it. Your life is not even here yet. This life we're living is not truly life for us anymore. I'll try to make this point again, but think about it. Project 80 billion years into the future. 80 Billion years. Now I know that's a hard thing to imagine. Just imagine an unimaginable number. 80 billion years into the future. How real is this life going to seem compared to the 80 billion minus 30, 40, or 50 you've experienced so far, minus this time? How, what is that going to be like? The difference. Well, imagine this. It might be more accessible. I'm 49. There was a time when I was two. I don't remember that time. I'm kind of glad I don't. I don't remember. I have no idea what it was doing, but I'm sure it probably wasn't worthwhile. At the time when I was two, that was my whole world, though. Everything was probably about getting something to eat, uh, finding my toy, being upset at my baby sister as early as I could, you know, to really establish a good relationship there. The world at two is the world at two. Right now I'm 49. That world is, is nonsense to me now. Right. This life I have lived since I was two defines who I am far more. Eighty billion years into the millennium. Sorry, the millennium is only a thousand years. Eighty billion years into your eternal life. This time will have seemed like a blip in a way. Far more. That is your life. It's there hidden in Christ. In a sense, you're waiting for it as Paul says here, and he says there, actually, verse four, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I'd like to spend the rest of the time in the sermon a little more uh, playfully a bit, trying to help us understand and, and using a few examples. And I'm not saying I've picked the best examples. And frankly, it's really more of an exercise for you to do on your own, because you know you better than I know you. Or maybe it's for your spouse to do. Your spouse probably knows you better than you know you. That happens all the time. But 
think about these things for yourself. And I just want to model these things with a few examples. Some of it will be just a little bit speculative, but I think in a, in a safe area. And I hope to keep that in mind. What I want to highlight is that our desires and our hopes and our joys in this world, if understood rightly, can still point us to the next, can point us to the life on the other side of the wall, on the other side of the shofar blast. Because ultimately, if it's something good and it's not sin, then there's no way it can find its greatest fulfillment in this life. It'll find its greatest fulfillment in that life where God gives us the opportunity to enjoy it to its fullest and to its greatest degree. So I want to pick some examples of that and, and just model that a little bit and try to, you know, we often say, we often encourage you to fast, pray, do Bible study and meditate. And meditation is something, it seems like, in, I know in my life, if anything gets sacrificed, that's often it. Because life is very busy. And it's hard to meditate when there's new Disney, Sony movie news, right, on my Twitter feed uh, that I want to read. So we have to step back and be willing to do this on occasion. Maybe it's a lazy Saturday night after Sabbath services and you're talking afterwards about some of these things. Trying to throw those things into the conversation. So I want to model this with some examples of joys in this life. Or maybe even sorrows in this life that can help direct us to the fact that really it's the joy on the other side of the wall that we should be seeking. And that these things perhaps can drive us that way instead of anchoring us in this world. The first, I'll give you a personal example. I'm going to pick on uh, Mr. Chris Pringle. Who asked me one of the most interesting self-examination questions I have ever been asked in my life. He said, it was very deep, very deep. Chris Pringle's a very deep person. It was very deep. He said, you know, Mr. Smith, if your life was going to be turned into a biographical musical, Wally Smith, the musical, which I'll be glad it's not, but still Wally Smith, the musical, every musical has this key song that defines the character and drives the story. What would be your song? What would be the title of that song? And I thought, well, that is a fantastic question. And I didn't know the answer. I did have to think about it. And we could go the easy route. I want to be a, I'm not going to sing it, but you know, I want to be a Christian. You know, I want to be a son of God. And you know, those are the obvious answers. And I, I really did think about it. Something that, that tied more to maybe my particular personality. I hope we're all striving, right? To be good Christians and children of God. And I did think, to me it sounds like a title, and I do admit every once in a while I sing one line in my head. The title, I think, would be, I want to know, exclamation mark. I want to know. There's so many things in the world that I don't know. It frustrates me, almost making me angry, but not really, because that would be rather odd. But there's things I don't know. There's things about physics. There's things about biology. Uh, There's things about the Bible. There's things about math. That's really frustrating. Uh, There's things about linguistics. I fell in love with the idea of studying languages and linguistics from two things. My Fair Lady and Professor Henry Higgins. And when Star Trek The Search for Spock came out and I had the Klingon English Dictionary. Those two things combined to help me realize language is fascinating. To be able to dive in and study what happened after the Tower of Babel and what were the dynamics about that. And it does bother me just a little bit that I'm in this life never going to know everything. Actually, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 13, it's important to understand this is the way things are going to be for all of us. Regardless of how many of us may think we do know everything, the fact is we don't. The Apostle Paul, putting some things in perspective in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and emphasizing the importance, the vital importance of love, says, for now we know in part and we prophesy in part. We know in part now. We do not know everything. We wish we knew everything, but we don't. We just don't. 
We're finite and we're human. And it's by God's mercy that we know the things we do. If any of us think that we're here in this room today because we were smart enough to figure out the beautiful truths of God, we are fools, absolute fools. Because God says it is by his spirit those things are known and revealed. It's in his mercy that we're given those things. And he doesn't give us everything. However, there's a time coming after the sound of that shofar, the seventh one. There's a time we're on the other side of the wall. When all of us, me in particular for this one, get to pick up that wallet and those keys. Because he says later on in the same chapter. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then... Face to face. Now I know in part, but then on the other side of this veil, on the other side of this wall, then I shall know just as I also am known. And that's a beautiful statement to me. How thoroughly are you known? How thoroughly am I known? We won't take the time to turn there, but you can read Psalm 139. And David praises God for the thorough knowledge that God has of him. Every fiber of his being, his thoughts, the words on his mouth. He says, you know me, God. And he says, that thought is too wonderful for me. How thoroughly you know me. And Paul says, to the degree I am known by God, I'm going to know him to that degree. Things will be revealed finally. And that is something that ties me. Me. This is me. That's something that ties me to the other side of the wall. It's something I look forward to understanding. Things I look forward to finally knowing. Let's look at some other things. That was me. I'm just a little vulnerable and sharing some things. But let's talk about what might impact some of you. Some of you are social butterflies. I've seen you. You love to fellowship. You thrive on fellowship and being with other people. You spend time with those people and you move to other people and you love it. And we talk about how much you love being with other people. And that's wonderful. It really is. It's, it's a beautiful thing to see. Those people that just love spending time with others actually help make the sober, uh, social lubricant of the gears of the church and kind of keep things going. Uh, it's, it's, really, it's really wonderful to be a part of. But that said, do we comprehend what that's going to be like on the other side of the wall? If you think fellowship and spending time with other people is wonderful now, you have no idea. I have no idea what that's going to be like. Uh, let me use one verse to at least help communicate that. Uh, John chapter 17. When Jesus Christ is praying for us, and it's really a, I say it's a wonderful part of his prayer. The whole prayer, of course, is, is wonderful. But this part always strikes me specifically because it's the part where his prayer turns to us specifically. He prays concerning his circumstance, his own circumstance, prays to his father about that. He prays about his disciples, those that are sitting there with him. And then he turns his prayer to you and me. He could just as well say in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but I pray for those in Charlotte, North Carolina. I pray for those in Africa that are my people, uh, that are my brothers and sisters. I pray for those in Europe. He says in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, I don't want to dilute the current present day impact of this statement. He does intend this to impact us now. That there should be a unity amongst us now. Otherwise, he wouldn't say that the world may believe that you sent me. You know, when someone responds to the telecast program, responds to the booklets, and they ask to come to services, all of a sudden, whether or not they believe that God sent Jesus Christ with the very message we shared is up to all of us here. Because he says that they may believe that you sent me. The implication is if we don't have that kind of unity, people will doubt. They'll wonder about that. They'll question the message, which really is questioning Christ who, who brought the message. 
But I dare say, is he really just limiting this sentiment to just this life? Isn't there reason to expect that when we do cross that divide, when we're on the other side, that the fellowship we share with God the Father and Jesus Christ, that that oneness will take on a radically different meaning that we can scarcely comprehend in this life. That our relationships with each other will be on a plane that nothing in this life can truly compare to. You know, my wife is, is, is the closest person to me in the whole world. And that's the way it's supposed to be in marriage. You, you should be close and intimate friends. But I dare say that there's no physical marriage on earth and the intimacy and knowledge and sharing that's produced with that that will even come close to comparing what it'll be like to be in that kingdom. To begin to taste the actual sort of fellowship that God the Father and Jesus Christ had before they were God the Father and Jesus Christ. When they were God and the Word, that kind of divine communion, if you will. Not in the Catholic sense, but in just the meaning of sharing. If you like relating to other people and spending time with other people, take advantage of that. Think about what that time will be like. See if that can help pull you into the idea of a greater fulfillment of that. If you get frustrated at times when there aren't people around, when God's people are far away and inaccessible, let that ache in you point you to that time on the other side of the wall. Speaking of aches, we can throw in their lost loved ones. All of us surely have someone we miss, someone who's gone, someone who's died. We're coming into these beautiful fall festivals where God not only gives us full permission to think about them and spend time considering them, but also in his mercy and his wisdom and love has designed an annual reminder that we will see them again. It's worth taking the time in terms of throwing your wallet and keys on the other side of the wall to every once in a while remind yourself of that one face that your eyes long to fall upon again. That one face that you long to hold in your hands again. And then remind yourself that is going to happen. It's just on the other side of that wall. It's just on the other side of that sound and allow that desire, allow the grief we feel in this life, allow the belonging and the absence that's still there to pull us in that direction. Not to have us just stew about this life, but to pull us with passion toward the next. You know, I was thinking there are some of you that are the opposite of social butterflies. You are the introverts. Congratulations. I'm very sympathetic. I am a practiced extrovert. My nature is a little more introverted. If you do a Myers-Briggs type, I do come out a legitimate E. But there's an I in there that E sort of grew out of for those of you that are into that. And I thought, you know, think about the other side for you too. If God happens to give you your own galaxy or two, you might finally get to read that book. You know, you've been wanting to read. You might finally be someplace where you can, oh, just a little bit of solitude, you know, perhaps where you recharge and spend time with others. But take our circumstances now and try to project to the life on the other side of that wall. Now, how about this? Perhaps you're one of these people. I am not. I'm working to adapt. Maybe you like uh, dancing and running and being active. You like doing things with your body. Or maybe it's on the other side. You haven't been able to do things for a long time. And you just wish you could get up and, and walk without a cane again. You sort of like having a cane. It gives you a chance to harass young people. But still, you'd kind of like to just be able to run across the room every once in a while and give your wife a kiss on the cheek before she knows you're coming or whatever the case is. Just to be able maybe sometimes to get out of a chair and not need wheels to get around anymore. Maybe physical activity is something you've enjoyed in this life. We'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because if that's important to us, then again, we need to think about the life on the other side of the wall. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Starting in verse 1. 
Paul says. And we, we understand in the church we're not these disembodied souls that separate. I'm not trying to introduce a difficult scripture. Let's read this for what Paul is t- intending. He's talking about our bodies now versus the bodies that we will have upon our resurrection. First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven if indeed having been clothed we shall not be found naked for we who are in this tent groan being burdened not because we want to be unclothed but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life you know mortality we tend to think of death but honestly i felt some mortality this morning my right arm's been aching a bit, my elbow and my shoulder. We have a new chin-up bar in the house, and that might be contributing to it. I'm not sure. I have, I do believe, worked up to 87 to 90% of a chin-up. I'm very excited. Your prayers will be appreciated that I can continue this trend. But it was sore. But and then this morning, out of nowhere, I thought I was doing fine. And then suddenly this arm's fine and this arm is sore. It's like, what is what is going on? I think the warranty has run out on my elbow and my shoulder. You know what that is? It's a taste of mortality is what it is. Right? Things run down. It can't be avoided. It does run down in this life. But you know what I look forward to is the other side of the wall. I can do chin-ups all day long on the other side of the wall, right? It won't stop. The dance doesn't have to stop in that sense if that's what we enjoy. You know, Revelation 21 and verse 4 says that in the end of all things, there's no more tears. There's no more crying. There's no more sorrow. And God specifically says there's no more pain. No more pain. If we enjoy our physically active bodies, you're out there on the ultimate Frisbee field or you're uh, for the Charlotte family weekend playing basketball or on the parking lot at headquarters playing basketball and you enjoy that, look forward to the kind of bodies you're going to have. If you're like me, and again, the warranty is running out and you're wanting to call the manufacturer a little bit and see if you can get a newer model or what's going on, let those pains point you to the other side because that's ultimately where our hope lies is over there. Let's talk about music and art. Won't turn there right now for the sake of time, but Revelation chapter 15 talks about the saints singing before God's throne, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. There is singing in the spirit realm. We will sing. If you enjoy singing, imagine the kind of voice that you're going to have. I was interested, I had heard about people that can supposedly sing a chord with just one, one human voice. And there is such a thing, I wrote it down because I don't want to get the term wrong. Polyphonic overtone singing, he says as he checks over to musically inclined people. Okay, where essentially with one vocal chord, some humans can produce simultaneously more than one note. It's the way certain things are overlaid in the vibrations and such. But that said, some of these complex chords and the rest, uh, we don't have that kind of fine-tuned control over our vocal cords. I speculate. I don't know if it's accurate. We'll find out one day. But what kind of voice do you think you'll have when you're on the other side of that shofar blast? I'm going to say I hope it's not this one. I'm... On some days I'm Mickey Mouse, some days I'm Pluto. It's, uh, this voice is not exactly my, my favorite voice. If we had a Mario Hernandez filter on the telecast, I would ask for that button to be pushed every time, every time I'm on. I look forward to some kind of voice and be able to praise God with that voice. Or maybe you're the conductor type. Maybe the singing performance is, is not yours. Uh, well, imagine what kind of orchestra you can have out of creation. Did you know when a star explodes, it actually makes a sound? The gases are dense enough. There's actually a, a ringing in the star. You wouldn't hear it because you would die. Or you would be vaporized, right? You don't want to be next to a star. Ooh, I hear the star makes a noise when it explodes. I'm going to hang around and, and hear it. And in the resurrection then, maybe you would get to. But they've, they've discovered based on their ideas of star dynamics that it's an F above middle C. I had my son come downstairs and hit the note for me this morning just so I could hear it. That's the sound of a star. It's very beautiful. It's very nice. Imagine creation was your orchestra. The angels and even your fellow God beings were your choir 
to conduct. I mean, how much joy would that be? Can that pull us to that side? If you're more of the type of a painting artist and such, imagine we know Psalm 139 says that even the darkness is like the day to God. There's nothing he can't see. There's no part of the spectrum, visible or invisible, that he cannot see. Imagine what you could create. Imagine the sights you'll be able to share with the rest of us. Can you take your joy in this life and project it to that one? Perhaps you long for a family. You know, there are some that desire children, desire a husband, desire a wife. God assures us the level of fellowship that we're going to experience in the future. It's going to be a family beyond compare. You know, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm not trying to downplay, again, the joys of this life. Children can be a great source of joy and a great source of sorrow. Christ is our brother, but there is a fatherly feel from him. He does care for us. He does take care of us. Sort of like a, 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 an older brother who's quite a bit older, perhaps, than his, his siblings. And in Hebrews chapter 2... We see these prophesied words of Jesus Christ and what he says in uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, he's not ashamed to call us brethren, the end of verse 11, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly and sing praise to you. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters and looks forward to that time. So I've known only children who wish they had a brother or sister to grow up with, and they didn't. And... There's no brother or sister in this world that's going to match the joy of the siblings that we will be for each other in that time. It says in verse 13, and I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. The joy that does lie within parenting is not even able to come close to the joy of the kind of parenting we will do in the millennium for others. It's a shade of that. If we take joy from our children, then project that into a future where it brings you more joy than you can imagine. When you truly understand, I'm not just raising them to be good people, I'm raising them to become this. And if you long for children and don't have any, understand that you, we, there will be no one who feels denied on the other side of the wall. You know, Laura Story's song, Blessings, uh, is one of my favorites. And there's a lyric in that song where she sings, What if my greatest disappointment are the aching of this life, or the revealing of a greater thirst that this world cannot satisfy? Sometimes those achings in us on this side of the wall are serving a purpose. And we think that somehow the solution to that aching is in this life. And again, there's nothing wrong with seeking the fulfillment of that. As long as we understand, as long as we understand that the ultimate fulfillment really is on the other side. In the end, what that aching represents is something that can truly only be ultimately fulfilled on the other side of that wall. Let's look at something a little less heavy. Because I want to say even our smaller joys can do this. Some of you are really into sports. I don't know why, but some of you are. I've seen you out there sportsing all the time, right? You're really into sports. Can that point us to the future? Let me ask you this. Is it possible that there, we could do sports in the family of God as children of God? Honestly, if it's not a sin, I don't know why not. I don't know why we couldn't. I'd love to finally be able to play basketball with some of you guys, maybe. Why couldn't we? I mean, well, if you make every shot, that's no fair. Well, who, you know, if you really think of the nature of every sport, it's a bunch of artificial restrictions that you've imposed just for the fun of it. Believe it or not, there's no law in nature that requires a basketball to be dribbled. Frankly, it makes it harder to get from one goal to the other by having to bounce it on the ground. And what do we do? We say, hey, let's, let's bounce the ball on the ground. Let's not just run with it. Let's bounce it. We make things harder for ourselves just because we enjoy it, right? Personally, in my mind, I can imagine, we have quite a thriving Ultimate Frisbee gang here in North Carolina, here in Charlotte. And I can imagine in the far-flung future, maybe that 80 billion years in the future, that gang getting together as glorified beings saying, hey, guys, I have an idea. Let's all go to Earth 
And let's just assume our 20-year-old limitations and let's ultimate Frisbee. And let's do it with these tireless, amazing bodies. But let's go ahead and retain our invulnerability because if an elbow lands, we don't want a broken nose, right? We, you know, let's go ahead and remain invulnerable and let's also fly because that would be great, right? That would be a thing we couldn't do back then. And just for kicks, let's grant everyone the speed of Travis Pate. Uh, just to really push the limits, right? I would, that would be a hoot, right? Is it, no, is that really going to happen? Well, you're here now. You can make it happen 80 billion years from now. Remind me that this is what I suggested you do. I don't know, but I do know that what's coming for us is so much better than anything we can imagine. And so why not imagine? You know, if you like gardening or Minecraft, you are really in for a treat on the other side of the wall. Uh, gardening is like Minecraft in real life for those who are children and really enjoy Minecraft. One of my favorite pictures, I had the chance to use it in a magazine uh, about terraforming, is a picture of Mars. But when you see it, you don't know it's Mars at first because it's beautiful. It's green and there's oceans everywhere and there's clouds around the planet and then as you start to pay attention, those things that little, look like little lakes, they're, they're circular. They're little perfect circles here and there. And then you take a look at what Mars looks like today and you recognize things. What they did was essentially take Mars and take its topology, its topography, and they just filled the low spots with water, put greenery on the planet. And it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I look forward to being able to Take part in that. You know, if you're a gardener, feel free and ask God, can I just have Mars? Can I just have the chance? Just give me one planet. There's trillions out there. Just give me Mars and let me get my hands dirty for a few thousand years. Uh, feel free. That's part of why I like that. You know, mankind has these great ideas. But then they won't just be ideas. On the other side of the wall, our desires, our, our joys become unleashed. It might be a bit speculative, but Mr. Ames is constantly reminding us that if you look in Hebrews chapter 2, in verses 5 through 8, when it says that he's put all things under our feet, the Greek there is tapenta. It means the all. It means the universe. There are some that would say, you know, if life is only on this earth, why did God create all this other stuff? Because he wants to give it all to us. But again, that's on the other side. Can we take our times in the garden? Can we take the joy of weeding and somehow turn that into something that pulls us to the other side of the wall that makes us want to be there more than we want to be here? The thing is, you need to take these ideas and do them for yourself. I wish I could do it for all your favorite things. I don't know what your favorite things are. I tried to think of something for Mr. Weston. I know he likes to fish. And I thought... Well, you know, as a divinely powered being, he could kill all the fish in the world. And I realized that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. That's not exactly right. But what is part of the joy of that? I don't think it's just killing fish. I think it's the time you get to spend in the creation, the time you get to find out. He brings home these beautiful pictures on his phone. And he'll say, hey, you want to look at pictures? And he's, he's thumbing through his phone, right? And showing you picture after picture. And we love every single one of them, Mr. West. It is picture after picture of these. But I do have to admit, it makes you want to go. It makes you want to be there. But imagine the kind of life we're going to have when we get to make that of the universe and then live there. And make it for others and invite each other over and surprise them with what we've done. Do this with your own desires and your own joys and the goal is for us to learn somehow to anchor ourselves to the world on the other side of the wall by using the things right now that seem so mundane that seem so simple that seem so everyday with the recognition that if they're not sin if they're not sin then they can be good joys and they can picture the greater joys to come if you turn to Romans chapter 8, we'll wrap up with this one verse. Romans chapter 8. I think it's one of the most powerful, for me personally, one of the most powerful verses of the Bible. Romans chapter 8. 
The whole passage is absolutely fantastic. I greatly encourage you to read this passage, chapter 8, around the day of trumpets, around the feast of trumpets, and, and make that a part of your study for the holy day. But he says this one thing in verse 18 that just captures me and does not let me go. Romans 8 and verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What is Paul saying? Well, one, he's admitting what we all know to be true. On this side of that wall, on this side of that shofar blast, the world is filled with suffering. Our joys are never continuous. They are always interrupted by other things. And we do suffer. And there are people we know who suffer more than we do. And he's embracing that. He recognizes that. But what he's telling us to do is take those sufferings, take your pains, take your heartbreaks, take your disappointments and project to the other side of the wall and throw your wallet over and throw your keys over because that pain teaches you something if we're willing to pay attention. Because the magnitude of what you feel, the number of tears that you have cried, all of that, measure it however you want and then take that measure and use it to measure life on the other side of the wall. And he will say, you will find that that life is such a life that all of those things do not compare. They don't even come close. They're not halfway up the scale. They're not a twelfth of the way up the scale. There is no comparison. Let us learn to take our joys in this life, our sorrows in this life, the things we enjoy from our hobbies to really our greatest excitements to even our lows and our greatest suffering. And let us learn to attach those things to what life means on the other side of the wall. Now let's throw our wallet and keys over.